well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep in their arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. Congratulations, by the way, to you uh, California gun owners who were able to purchase ammunition over the weekend without having to go through a background check. I got to say, I'm really surprised that the uh, Ninth Circuit hasn't weighed in one way or the other, at least as of midday Monday morning. We have not had an administrative stay in uh, Rody versus Bont. The uh, Ninth Circuit has not uh, put a halt to Judge Benitez's decision that uh, overturned California's ammunition background check law, also the law that uh, prohibited California residents from purchasing ammo online, having it shipped to their home, uh, prohibited them from leaving the state, driving over to Arizona or Nevada, purchasing ammunition, and then bringing it back across state lines. Now, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's I, I almost didn't even want to mention it because I don't want to jinx things. Uh, and we'll see what the Ninth Circuit does. But, I mean, it has been a couple of days now. Uh, again, over the weekend, there was at least one gun show held in California and uh, ammo again available for sale. So, uh, fingers crossed that uh, maybe the Ninth Circuit does the right thing here and uh, allows Judge Benitez's decision to remain in place while the state of California appeals that decision. We're going to be talking about a, another case, just one on the East Coast today. Uh, Amy Bellantoni is an attorney uh, working on, uh, well, several Second Amendment cases, uh, but one that was recently before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the Fry case, dealing with the open carry of firearms in New York State, as well as some of the sensitive places uh, in New York law, including bans on firearms on public transportation, uh, which is, I, you know, this is what we're, we're seeing. Look, we've got multiple challenges underway, right? We've got a challenge in Illinois. Uh, there is a uh, challenge. I believe it is still live, although it uh, it, it was dismissed. Um, but I think it's uh, been appealed up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Challenge to the uh, ban on firearms in D.C.'s metro. Um, now, not every public transport network across the country prohibits firearms. But there are some major jurisdictions that do. And I think this is incredibly problematic given that, again, we're talking about public transportation, something that, uh, you know, in major metropolitan areas, a lot of folks depend on. You tell them you can't carry a firearm when you're on the subway or on a bus. That means you can't carry a firearm when you are walking to the subway or the bus once you get off the subway or bus. And in essence, you're basically disarmed throughout the entirety of your day. So why should you have to afford a car or walk everywhere, maybe use a bike, uh, instead of simply being able to you know, use the same public transportation system that hundreds of thousands, not millions of other people do? without sacrificing your right to keep and bear arms. Again, that is one of the questions at the heart of the Fry case we talked about with Amy Bellantoni a couple of days ago. Apologies for uh, Amy that we did not get to this interview until today. was trying to do a show on Friday, but uh, life got in the way. So, delayed, but uh, still a fascinating conversation with uh, Amy Bellantoni. Take a look and a listen. Amy, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I, I I want to talk about the Fry case, um, but can you just kind of lay out because this is one of those cases that has sort of been bouncing up and down and all around. Uh, it was filed before the Bruin decision was handed down, right? Yes, that's correct. And this okay. is our third preliminary injunction application. So. Okay, so yeah, this really has been bouncing all over the place. Um, so, so just kind of give a general overview of what this lawsuit is about and if it's changed over the course of these you know requests for injunctions. 
So the lawsuit is about um, a, a few different aspects of the firearms laws in New York State. Um, first is the ban on open carry. Um, I have a kind of a similar case um, pending in the state of California in the Eastern District. Um, California is a little bit different because there's no license requirements to have a firearm in your home, a handgun in your home. So it makes things a little easier there. They do have open carry on the books, although no open carry license has been issued since 2012, but it was a little easier uh, a foray into the argument for open carry. And plus there was the Young case that kind of paved the way, uh, so to speak, a little bit um, going forward on that. Um, so being a New Yorker um, and having clients that, especially upstate, um, that desire to open carry, uh, including Mr. Fry and Mr. Sabe, uh, we brought the lawsuit uh, challenging the open carry ban and specifically, you know, the criminal statutes um, that punish people for just engaging in uh, legitimate, uh, law-abiding, peaceful carry, um, you know, open and uh, and holstered. So it's the open carry ban. Um, there's also a law in New York State that's um, peculiar. Um, so if an individual is issued a concealed carry license outside of the state of New York, so anywhere, Long Island and Westchester and North, um, which uh, in which the licensing officers, um, you know, those carry licenses are good throughout the state. But under New York statute, they're invalid in New York City. So if someone's driving in Westchester with a concealed carry permit and, you know, makes a wrong turn into the Bronx and is pulled over for, you know, whatever traffic violation, they're automatically a criminal. Um, there is an exemption uh, in the statute from felony uh, arrest and prosecution, but it's still, you know, under the licensing statute and misdemeanor. Um, and early on in the case, I did make an argument to, um, and it's part of the complaint, to enjoin the um, criminal statutes under the penal law section 265, which is the criminal um, possession of a weapon That's and those, um, those provisions. Um, and the district court judge and the state and the city all said, no one's going to get arrested for a felony, uh, you know, if they have a license in New York City. And I mean, if they have an out of, out of, you know, out of city uh, license and they carry in New York City. Well, I, I do have a client, uh, a 23 year old who was uh, driving in uh, New York City and had his concealed carry a weapon on him and in fact was arrested for three felonies. So now this young boy who's never had an arrest and who is duly licensed in New York State, um, you know, is going through that process, unfortunately. Um, so we're challenging the requirement that in New York State, you need two separate licenses um, in order to uh, carry concealed in the city. And plaintiff William Sape in the Fry, in the Fry case, um, in fact, has a New York, New York State permit that was issued in Orange County and um, applied several years ago for a New York City license and was denied because although the New York State licensing officer uh, found that he had good moral character and, and issued him the license, New York City used it as an uh, opportunity to say he did not have good moral character and deny his application. So he definitely um, you know, has standing there to challenge um, that regulation. And you know, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, no. it just, it just strikes me that you know this is one of the issues that we're dealing with here. That you know, you've got these anti-gun states saying, "Well, uh, good moral character." I mean, that's that, that's not an arbitrary standard, right? That's not subjective. That we can we can base that on objective criteria. But here you have two different licensing authorities coming to very different conclusions about the same individual, which to me 
shows that, yeah, that, that good moral character clause is subjective in nature, no matter uh, how yeah. much they might contend otherwise. All right. Anyway, I'm sorry. So what's the third aspect of the case? Oh, yeah. And you're right. And that's the poster. My, Mr. Safay is the poster child for why good moral character should not even be a factor in licensing. Um, if we're even going to have licensing, which is a whole, you know, a whole separate uh, issue. Right. Um, the third issue are uh, two sensitive places, sensitive areas, um, you know, that uh, were, uh, I guess, integrated uh, as part of the Concealed Carry uh, Act. I'm not going to say improvement. I'm just going to say act. <laughs> yeah. I can't I can't subscribe to that. Um, so and they are um, the Times Square ban and the ban on uh, carrying concealed in um, well, on public transportation. So plaintiff uh, Jason Fry. Um, and as part of his declaration, you know, he goes into the city, he takes the MTA train, he takes the subways. Um, so, you know, that was his standing, um, you know, to challenge uh, that provision. So um, we applied for, after the Bruin case, we applied for our third preliminary injunction um, because the first two had been denied. And uh, and then and here we are. So the district court denied it. And and then we were in the appellate division uh, in oral argument this week. And uh, how how do you think oral arguments went? I, I saw just one story from Courthouse News Service that said uh, the panel was skeptical, uh, seemed skeptical uh, about the idea that um, that public transportation is not a sensitive place. Um, and was that really the, the the crux of the questioning that they were asking you uh, during the hearing this week? It was a feisty argument. It was it was actually pretty <laughs> exhilarating. I like when I have a lot of feedback and and pushback from the court. It it works my brain well. Um, so I, the first, so once the oral, oral argument got started, um, you know, one of the judges focused in on whether that, that panel was, whether their hands were tied as a result of the Antonyuk decision. And Antonyuk, uh, which was decided uh, December 8th, I believe, of last year, um, you know, involved a lot of the sensitive areas, um, you know, and including public parks and and the reasoning and the decision in Antonyuk um, set the stage and really hogtied future panels when it comes to, and I'll make the distinction here, concealed carry, because Antonyuk did specifically say that that case was limited to concealed carry. So this, in my papers, I argued would not apply to open carry. Um, but they hogtied everyone um, going forward because they basically said there's a, a long history and tradition of banning um, firearms and in this case concealed carry in places that are crowded, in places that have vulnerable populations. So as part of the um, state and city's argument, and we also had amicus briefs from the MTA and the New York Times, uh, uh, the New York, I'm sorry, Times Square Alliance. Um, and of course, every town, um, you know, we make his briefs saying that, you know, there are so many children that take the public transportation and they're so vulnerable um, that, you know, that we shouldn't have any firearms around them because, you know, I, I don't know why, but, you know, that was their that was their reasoning. So the court uh, in in this case was concerned that they wouldn't be able to. um issue a decision contrary to the Antonyuk panel's finding already of a long history and tradition of banning firearms in crowded places, which Times Square is crowded. Public transportation, God knows, is crowded, uh, whether it's the MTA, the buses, the subways. So uh, to an extent that the one panel cannot overrule another panel, 
then you know they're they're correct on that for concealed carry. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it seems to me like and again the the, the Second Circuit panel, I think uh, that decision in Antioch kind of ignored what the Supreme Court had to say in Bruin, right? I mean, Bruin, the court basically said you can't just declare every place where the public might congregate or where kids might be present as a sensitive place, because if that was the case, then you could just declare the entire island of Manhattan to be a sensitive place. And they said that that that's not possible. Um, so do you think the Second Circuit panel in Antioch it was intentionally misreading the Bruin decision? Because I think we've seen a lot of that uh, in courts around the country since Bruin came down. I think the major flaw with judicial decisions and the bench as a whole is the willingness to ignore the truth and the agenda that is pushed and just completely pushing aside the Supreme Court. I mean, Heller, really, Bruin was unnecessary as Justice Thomas's dissent in the Rogers versus Gruel case when he dissented from a denial of cert in the Ninth Circuit. He laid it out. And it really, Bruin, if if the lower inferior and their inferior courts, if they just obeyed the Supreme Court decision and the Constitution, we wouldn't be here. But they don't. So I think that that, that that's the major flaw with the judiciary is they have an agenda, they're pushing it, and they are not they are not loyal to the truth. There are whole sections of Bruin that are just ignored. And there's um one there's a reference um to footnote, I believe it's footnote nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why they put it in a footnote, but everything the Supreme Court says is is valuable in their analysis. And whether it's a footnote or not, um, it can't be discarded. But the arrogance of certain, uh, you know, elect, certain appointed or elected officials seems to just get in the way and blind them to think that they are above the law that they're supposed to be in, you know, interpreting and applying so, um, yes, yeah, so footnote nine was cast aside as um, Im- immaterial and unimportant, um, and it's not. So, yes, um, they did, in fact, declare the whole Isle of Manhattan a sensitive area. And actually, with the CCIA, um, most of the state of New York, um, thankfully, the restricted areas um, have been uh, that's been overturned. So that's that's great. And, you know, I can't fault the Antonio panel completely. They did. You know, they did. Re- the, reinforce standing, which makes it easier for um, for plaintiffs to to demonstrate that they have Article three standing and the restricted areas they you know that was that was an on point um, conclusion. but this is just very unfortunate and it takes such a long time for people just to be able to do things that God gave them the right to do and they just can't because people want to control other people. Yeah. And, and, you know, particularly when it comes to public transportation, and I, I don't know, I don't know why I'm so sensitive to this. I have never really lived in a city where I've had to use public transportation. Um, but my wife, uh, you know, when I met her, she didn't have a car. She lived in uh, Camden, New Jersey, the murder capital of the United States at the time. Um, and, you know, she relied on public transportation. When we first got married and she moved to Oklahoma, she took the bus to and from work. So I, I guess maybe that's why I think about this, because if you Tell somebody, sure, you have the right to carry a firearm for self-defense, but if you depend on a bus or a subway to get around, uh, sorry, you, you've lost that right entirely, right? You, now you're back to being defenseless uh, throughout the entirety of your day. I, I just, I, again, I'm not an attorney, but I don't see how on earth that can com- uh, comport with the Second Amendment, much less the Bruin test, because there is no historical tradition 
of banning firearms in public transportation. You could argue that public transportation didn't exist widespread at the time of the founding or when the 14th Amendment was ratified. But but even then, you know, the statutes or the ordinances or the, or the uh, policies that the state is putting forth as a defense primarily involve private companies, right, making private decisions and saying, well, we don't want to have firearms in our, uh, you know, horse-drawn carriage or stagecoach or something like that. Yes, you're entirely right. Um, so their examples were um, the early, you know, transportation and specifically uh, the early railroad uh, rules. And I and I during oral arguments said I'm not going to call them regulations because these were privately owned companies and they had their own rules. And for the most part, it, it was a monopoly. Um, they were unelected people, uh, just you know, corporations, uh, companies making decisions about what they wanted to do with their own private companies. There was no tradition of government uh, regulation of firearms on public transportation. Um, and I did make the point that you're right, like you like you said, for the entirety of your day, you step out of your house and it's not just, oh, you can't carry on, on the bus or you can't carry on the subway. It's as soon as you step out of your house, you're disarmed for everywhere that you go, going to the bus, from the bus to wherever you're going and everywhere you go that day and then back on the bus and then back to, you know, the bus stop and then from the bus stop to when you have to walk home at night um, and, you know, you need to defend yourself. And uh, amazingly, uh, the response from the attorney for the city was, well, you can always ride a bike. This is the arrogance. It's disgusting. Um, and when you give people, this is why every state should be constitutional carry. There's no history and tradition for licensing. It didn't even happen until, you know, 1911 here and 19, the 1920s and 30s in other states, um, with the exception of permission required by the freemen, um, who, or not, before they were freed, uh, the slaves to, you know, get permission from their masters. And it, it, it just appears that, you know, the elites want everyone to be slaves and to get permission from the masters. Um, but there's no tradition of licensing. And it was kind of disappointing when the Supreme Court went into the discussion of licensing. I, I don't think they were condoning or giving an imprimata on our, of, of, of licensing. They were making the distinction between may issue subjective criteria and shall issue objective criteria. That was the distinction that they were making and they weren't even they didn't even subject licensing to their own brewing test because if you do that licensing fails 100% every time um but i think there's a lot of confusion and apart from the confusion i think that language uh, in brewing is being used and manipulated as is other language um to just you know say that they've already decided that there's a history and tradition of licensing but when we give human beings power and authority over other human beings, this is what happens, you know, yeah. unfortunately. You know, we've seen other dodges too. I mean, you mentioned one of the arguments that uh, was being made by uh, the, the state in the city is that, wow, there's there's no real danger that this law is going to be enforced, even though you have a client who is facing felony charges. I think we saw that in Connecticut too. There was a challenge to Connecticut's ban on concealed carry in, in state parks. Um, and again, the, the state and the judge agreed that, you know, well, basically, you know, there's no chance of you being arrested. Then why not repeal the law? Exactly. I mean, if the law is on the books, you know, I expect that that law is going to be enforced. It is so it is so bizarre that you have, you know, the judiciary saying well, this isn't a problem, even if the law violates the Second Amendment. I just don't see that, uh, you know, anybody's going to get arrested for it. So let's just keep this in place. If that's the case, then throw out the law. I, you know, th so there there I agree with you that there are so many frustrating parts of this. And look, I mean, I guess every judicial decision can be abused to some degree or another. 
Uh, it's hard to write a, a you know bulletproof decision that uh, activist judges you know can't find a way to to monkey around with. Um, but it is interesting because you know you, you, when you talk about the licensing history, the history of licensing, you're right, really didn't exist. Uh, the Supreme Court did say that you know these shall issue systems are presumptively constitutional, um, but they even said that you know even shall issue systems can can abuse our right to keep and bear arms. They pointed out, uh, I think, unduly long wait times or exorbitant fees to apply as a couple of examples. Um, but it sounds to me like you're, you're able to point out some other examples here of, of how these uh, supposedly shall issue systems are still abusing and infringing on our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. Right. And and so even the shall issue states and that use objective criteria and the Supreme Court pointed to them and as again, as an example of objective criteria to be used, and the state is arguing in other cases that, well, Connecticut is still a, you know, they still have discretion. So they're still pushing this, we have discretion um, argument, which is just not consistent with the Second Amendment. And there's a lot of conflation um, with so many different things. And I saw that a lot, um, you know, in the Antonyuk case when, um, the court was justifying the the, the ban on sensitive areas um, in, in using statutes that are, were meant to prevent um, disorderly conduct and menacing and brandishing and criminal conduct. There's, you know, I made this point at the oral argument. After Bruin was handed down, New York State created all of these barriers to even getting a license. There's now an 18-hour course you have to do, two, which includes two hours of live fire, um, and it, they're very expensive. Um, they're disparate. They disparately impact people who are lower uh, socioeconomic uh, class. And okay, so now you know, and you've jumped through the hoops. You've done what you needed to do. You have your license, and now you can't carry anywhere. Right. Um, Really, you can't carry in public. And there, it was already a felony in New York State um, to carry without a license. So by passing this sensitive area and restricted area statutes, um, which make it a felony to carry in these areas, there's no exemption for licensed handgun owners. So it's really disingenuous to say, and, and they can't argue public safety, but they continue to argue public safety, even though Heller and Bruin and McDonald say, you can't argue public safety, but they continue to. Um, if these are the safe people and you still are banning them from caring in these areas, then just take the veil off. Just just come out and be honest and say, we don't want anyone to be armed. And that really is their goal and their agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, you're exactly right. I mean, New York, when they were told you can't arbitrarily limit who can carry, that's when they decide, all right, fine. Well, well, now we'll impose all these arbitrary limits on where they can carry, right? Concealed carry was not banned in New York subways and buses until after the Bruin decision was handed down. Is that right? That's correct. And you're absolutely right. Yep, that's correct. You know, the MTA may have had rules. I think I've seen some kind of rule with regard to um, firearms, but I don't know when I looked at it this week, I just revisited. I don't know if that was um, issued post Bruin or not. I think it was uh, issued post-Bruin because I ran across yeah. a, a news story that talked about how the MTA was revisiting its policies right after Bruin was handed down. Um, and from what I understood, 
Yeah, concealed carry was allowed because, again, there were very few concealed carry holders in Manhattan or or the other you know boroughs, and so apparently it wasn't an issue, right? When it was only the chosen few who had the right or had the ability to carry, uh, but when it was opened up to you know all of us, that uh, is when they had to step in and say, "Oh no, no, no time out, can't do that." Right. Um, uh, listen, I gotta say, I, I appreciate you fighting the good fight in New York, uh, and I, I, I'm gonna ask, how did you get interested and in, into Second Amendment litigation? Is this something that's always been? A passion of yours? Did you stumble onto this through a client? So um, I was in the district attorney's office in Rockland County for several years. And during that time, well, thereafter, um, my husband was a Westchester County Court judge and acting Supreme Court justice and a licensing officer in Westchester County, New York. And um, at some point, you know, I, I had little ones and then I went back into the uh, into the workforce and we he left the bench and we started our own firm and people would call and say, look, I'm getting denied for my pistol license. And and I know your husband was a licensing officer and we would assist them in you know, the licensing process. And then I started to see, you know, I started to take in, in New York, it's an Article 78, which was really the only avenue available um, because handgun licensing or was considered a privilege. Handguns were a privilege, even though long guns were not. And to an extent, that's still the mentality of New York State. Um, so from there, we started taking Article 78s for people to say, you know, that was that was an arbitrary and capricious ruling. And time again and again and again, they just kept getting denied because arbitrary and capricious is such a low standard. And you can come up with any reason as to why a, a licensing officer would deny someone. Oh, no, yeah, they 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 made sense. You know, I could see that happening potentially someday. You might be, you know, dangerous or this was not a good thing. So it was it was extremely frustrating. Um, but that's what got me uh, very motivated to continue in this fight. And I, and I love the fight and it's going to continue. Um, and ultimately, we will prevail. Um, it just takes time. Absolutely. Um, are there other cases that are uh, percolating that you're involved with that you want to talk about? Or is this is this the main focus for Second Amendment litigation for you right now? Um, it is one of the larger cases. Like I'd mentioned um, earlier, I have a case pending in the Eastern District of California where our summary judgment motion was just uh, recently denied by Judge Mueller out there. We're planning our appeal. Uh, we're getting that ready for the Ninth Circuit. Um, we were successful in um, the appeal of her denial of our preliminary injunction, which was fantastic. Um, our panel was great. She had completely skipped over um, the uh, analysis of the merits of the case because the state had offered no historical analog. So they kind of tried to get around that um, in denying the, the injunction. Um, and, you know, there are some cases pending against Suffolk County um, that attack their two to three year wait to get a, a handgun license issued. Um, yeah, that's the Giambalvo case um, that's that's pending now in the Second Circuit. So we're waiting for a decision to come down on that. And Is it is it Suffolk County that requires a P test for concealed carry no. applicants? No, that's okay. Nassau County. Is that Nassau yeah, County? Okay. I'm waiting for a plaintiff on that because that's just got to go. <laughs> you know, that's just that's just silly. Um, but we are also challenging um, New York City's $340 uh, fee for a, a handgun license and an application fee, plus another $90 or so for fingerprinting, um, and their uh, limit on only two handguns to be registered to your carry license um, at a time and the limitation on carrying only one handgun at a time. So, you know, some people would like a backup gun, um, rightly so, and and that's not allowed in New York City. So there's some good uh, stuff going on. Absolutely. As a Virginia resident, it just seems so bizarre to me that you would tie in a particular firearm to your carry license, because again, you're licensing the person, not the gun. But 
again, I'm glad we've got folks like you fighting this fight. Cause if I had to stand up in court, I'd just be like, your honor, what that bleep. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you've got much better legal arguments than I do. Uh, Amy Bell and Tony, thank you so much for coming on the program today. I look forward to having you back again soon, but uh, uh, please keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And you just let me know when I'd be happy to come back. Absolutely. We'll do this again very soon. And thanks to Amy for joining us on the program. Looking forward to having her back again very soon. Now let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and a very disturbing recidivist report from the Chicago area. Chicago Sun-Times reporting newly released records show violent history of man accused of killing eight in Juliet, including a fight with police a year ago. And I have to say that fight with the police, uh, a relatively minor part of uh, Romeo Nance's criminal record. Uh, you might recall that uh, Nance, again, accused of killing eight family members in Joliet and then fleeing to Texas, where he uh, took his own life as he was uh, trying to flee from authorities. Chicago Sun-Times says that the police records released under a public records request days before the funerals for the relatives, which took place over the weekend. They show that Nance was uh, charged with robbing two people at Knife Point in October of 2019, also charged with shooting at a woman during an apparent road rage attack in January of 2023. The reports also show that authorities were called to the two homes where Nance and his family lived at least 14 different times since April of 2022. Now, just in the armed robbery case, if Nance had not been offered a sweetheart plea deal, odds are he would have been in prison. He would not have been able to take the lives of eight family members, would not have been involved in that road rage incident either. And the armed robbery was accused of pressing a knife against the chest of one of the people outside of a tobacco store. Uh, one of the victims told police that they knew Nance. He was arrested with the knife in hand. He was charged with robbery, charged with theft, but ended up pleading guilty to a felony cannabis charge. Yeah, a nonviolent offense, right? So all of the violent charges dropped. He pleads guilty to a, a felony drug charge, but he is sentenced to just 29 days in jail, basically time served, and received two years of probation. When he could have been, again, sentenced to years in prison for a violent armed robbery. So he gets a slap on the wrist. And apparently uh, didn't make much of an impression on him. Uh, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, in the road rage shooting, a woman told police that she was stopped at a red light when Nance began honking behind her. He then pulled alongside her, started yelling at her, threw a water bottle at her car. She then called 911 and followed him to a Walgreens parking lot. But as she was following him, he fired shots from his vehicle. Fourteen shell casings were covered from several crime scenes connected to the incident. A bullet hole found in the driver's door of the woman's car. Another round apparently smashed through a nearby home, hitting a countertop and lodging in the kitchen wall. Um, there was a resident in the home at the time. Police used cell phone records and cameras to track down Nance. Uh, he apparently briefly scuffled with them, and they were trying to take him into custody. That's the fight that the Chicago Sun-Times refers to in the headline. Again, a rather minor incident, considering the other violent crimes that he was charged with. In this case, he was charged with felony counts of aggravated discharge of a weapon, aggravated unlawful use of a weapon, reckless discharge, aggravated assault. I don't know why he wasn't charged with felony possession of a fire because of the felony drug charge that he pleaded guilty to back in 2019, but apparently that was not one of the uh, crimes that he was accused of committing. According to the Chicago Sun-Times, that case was still pending when uh, Nance killed those family members, and then took off for Texas where he took his own life. His bail had been set at $100,000, but he was released just a few weeks later after his girlfriend posted the required 
Uh, so just $10,000. She's now charged, by the way, with obstruction of justice for allegedly lying to police as they tried to find Nance after the uh, mass shooting. And again, you know, this was one of those cases where we saw gun control advocates say that Chicago hadn't done enough, right? Illinois hadn't done enough. More gun control laws were needed. Here you have somebody who was a convicted felon who should have been behind bars based on this earlier violent crime, who instead was given a slap on the wrist, time served, sent on his merry way, uh, accused again of a crime of violence to say a short time later, a couple of years later, and was allowed to bond out on a relatively low amount of bond, despite his previous criminal history. Uh, again, not even charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm at that point, even though he'd been convicted of a violent, well, sorry, he'd been accused of a violent armed robbery just a few years prior. Does this show the need for more gun control laws? I don't think so. To me, shows the need for a functional criminal justice system in Cook County, Illinois. Now, today's armed citizen story from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. This is a weird one. A uh, Snapchat scam turned deadly when a Bartlesville woman shot an intruder in uh, what authorities are calling a home invasion error. Now, it was a home invasion. It may have been the wrong home, but it was still a home invasion. Uh, this from uh, the Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise reports a 23-year-old Bartlesville man fatally shot on January the 12th after breaking in the back door of an apartment after he had sent money over Snapchat for the promise of sex. The problem was that the person he sent the money to was apparently a scammer who didn't live in Bartlesville, sent him a fake address. Well, it was a real address in Bartlesville. The guy shows up at the wrong house. Even if he had showed up at the right house, however, nobody inside would have known what he was doing or what he was talking about, right? But instead, he shows up at this stranger's apartment starts banging on the door. The uh, victim in this case, a 25-year-old woman, identified by authorities uh, by her initials, A.T., she was working on her laptop that morning. She hears this, uh, hears this loud knocking on her door, which then turns into bang, 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 bang. She told police that she had warned the stranger at the door that she was armed, and she would shoot if they entered the apartment. Shortly after that, the door apparently gave way, that's when A.T. fired a single round hitting James Allen. After uh, first responders arrived, he was taken to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. Uh, Will Drake, who's the Washington County D.A., said the doors off its hinges, broken door chains located embedded into the door, broken chain locks are found inside the apartment. There are wood splinters from the door that are found in the kitchen and the dining room area. Uh, Drake uh, said the shooting was justified. Um, he said, when applying the laws of Oklahoma to the evidence from the investigation, it's clear that the actions of AT are a justifiable use of deadly force. She was faced with a person beating aggressively on the door to her residence. She gave a warning to the individual, which is not required by law. She then observed an adult male break through her residence door with enough force to take the door off the hinges, a person whom AT had not known and who had no right to be present in her home. AT then shot Allen, resulting in his death. Under the laws of Oklahoma, she was justified in her actions. I would think that she'd be justified in her actions under the laws of any state in the union, although I guess, you know, there maybe are some anti-gun locales where uh, this use of force would be questioned. So here's where it gets really strange. According to investigators, Allen had sent money to a Snapchat user uh, by the name of uh, Lori Twowise 20 who gave him an address in Bartlesville where they would supposedly meet up to have sex. Um, according to the Bartlesville paper, Allen showed up at the wrong address. Police went to the correct address, 
but they were not able to locate anybody connected to the Lori20 username or the Snapchat account. So they filed a search warrant on Snapchat. Uh, police learned that Lori20 had contacted multiple other users with that same promise of exchanging money for sex, uh, leading Barlesville police to believe that the Snapchat user was a scammer from a foreign country who just apparently, you know, found an address, entered it in, no regard whatsoever for the person who might have been at that residence. Parcel uh, police say there's no evidence to suggest that Alan knew or ever communicated with the woman who shot him. And again, I, I can't help but wonder what would have happened had he shown up at the quote-unquote right address and encountered somebody who was not armed. I mean, he, this guy was willing to beat down a door in order to get inside after the person inside told him, go away, I don't want you here. Which makes me wonder if uh, Alan had shown up at the, you know, right house, so to speak, what kind of violence might he have committed against that individual if they weren't able to protect themselves? Thankfully, A.T. was able to defend her life from the stranger who beat down her door. And again, not facing any charges as a result of that justifiable act of self-defense. Finally today, in the right place, at the right time, unable to do the right thing, a police officer in Texas who uh, performed the Heimlich maneuver on the side of the road after a, a motorist alerted him to the fact that she was choking. Uh, yeah, Chad Stevens, been on the Mansfield, Texas police force for 12 years, apparently has never had to perform the Heimlich maneuver before, but as he was driving down the interstate, he noticed a car that was swerving on the highway. Driver pulls over, kind of makes the universal I'm choking sign, right? Uh, Stevens pulls his car over as well, hops out. At this point, the woman is already out of the car. Uh, he asks, are you choking? Mm-hmm. And that's when he started to, you know, do the homic maneuver, took four thrusts uh, to save the woman, whose name is Samantha. She was apparently uh, choking on gum. Um, she said, yeah, somebody swerved in front of me. I got scared. And apparently the gum lodged in her throat. She said she had been driving on Interstate 20 with her hazard lights flashing for about 15 minutes trying to get help, trying to cough everything up, but she was unable to do so, struggling to breathe. Um, Stevens, when asked about this afterwards, says, it looked like a good-sized piece of gum. He said, I didn't touch the gum. Uh, Well, why would you? Uh, After it's on the road, why would you need to do that? Anyway, he said he was uh, returning to Mansfield from uh, the town of Everman, where he had finished taking a police report, just happened to pass Samantha on the interstate, noticed her panic. He said, I was glad I was in the right place at the right time. And like I said, that's what we're here to do. Samantha, by the way, said she didn't need a medic, so Stevens continued on to the next stop. He said he believes any officer in the police department would have done the same thing because of their training, and and that's probably the case. But again, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Chad Stevens, there in Mansfield, Texas, we thank you for your very, very good deed. That is going to do it for this edition of Arian Arms Camp Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program. As always, I'm looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow. Who knows what the news will bring? Hopefully, we'll get some more good decisions coming out of the courts. But uh, oh, we've seen some crazy, awful decisions, too. So, uh, get your chance, it seems, these days. Also, follow what's going on in the state legislatures around the country. Gun control is on the move in New Mexico as well as uh, several other states. Make sure you're following along at BarionArms.com. If you like what you see, I'd encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member as well. All you have to do, go to BarionArms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP or VIP Gold membership. 
Zarg saying thanks. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else because your support really does make a difference and it truly does matter. So, sincerely, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. It's as good as a Monday can be. We'll see you back here tomorrow for 2A Tuesday. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.